Good morning, church. Uh, it's good to see everybody here. Um, hopefully you're enjoying the, the fall weather and um, everyone's doing safe. And uh, as we continue to go through this on Zoom, uh, just to kind of update you, uh, a poll was sent out last uh, week, I think. Uh, Amy sent out something to kind of gauge in just in terms of where we are in terms of opening the church and, and doing in-person worship. And so uh, we're making some headway. Um, we're going to be discussing it. The leadership will discuss it, and then we will make some decisions um, and hopefully some timing and uh, some some kind of, some kind of timeline so that we can like figure out when is it when is it good to do it and how we're going to do that. And so, uh, stay tuned for more of that. I think we will probably do some kind of informational meeting on that as well when we do. But. Um, uh, yeah, just to kind of give you an update on that as well. Um, anyways, if you're joining us here for the first time, uh, welcome. But I think uh, what we're doing here today is we are looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, as Noah just read our, our passage today from verses 12 to verse 20. And um, we were doing this series here in 1 Corinthians. We took a little break and, and then we did a little bit of Hebrews. And then last week we came back to this this passage and here this passage I think a couple things one it shows us that the Bible isn't really just all about you know uh, you know little cherubims and, and angels in the sky and everything's so spiritual and everyone's in the cloud it's also very realistic and it's also very vivid and in your face sometimes and, and can be a little jarring and so we're looking at these verses and what we're going to do is we're really going to talk about about sex. Last week we talked about uh, what Paul was addressing in their context and um, their view of the body in general. And of course that's going to lead now into more detailed specifics about the particular issue of sexual sin. And the way he does this is that he kind of tells them this is this is why you should engage in what you're doing because this is what sex is. All right, that's that's what we're going to do here today. Uh, and so this is a PG-13 uh, sermon. So if you've got uh, little kids under 13 or whatever, you know, use your wisdom because um, it, it may be something that you don't want to uh, have your kids hear about. So if they're there, get them out of the way, right? Um, but other than that, I, I'll trust that you know what's best, okay? All right. Um, <clears throat> so this is going to sound like a little, this sermon, it's going to be a little more uh, like a seminar-ish type of, type of, type of thing. Um, <clears throat> but last week, we, we saw part of the problem with this church was their, their view of, of the body, right? The, the physical body. And, and there were many reasons for why they did what they did, even as the church and, and as Christians. But I think as we look at the body, we, we understand last week that uh, it's not just your soul that is important. It, it's also your body that God created, not, not just your soul to be the most important thing and your body is simply a skin that kind of covers it. it. He created both body and spirit. He created Adam and Eve in body and spirit. Jesus Christ was resurrected in body and spirit. And he promises us that one day we too will follow in that footstep and we will be resurrected in body and spirit. And so the body is important and what we do with it is, is important, that it is our bodies that God has given, but yet it is something that we are called to be good stewards of and, and to live, do for his glory, all right? So as we look at that, as we understand that from last week, now we talk a little bit about sex, all right? 
Uh, I'm not an expert on sex, okay? So don't get me wrong. I'm just going, I think, from what I see here in, in the scriptures. But let's be honest. Why even talk about it? And I think part of the reasons I, th I think we need to talk about it, at least once in a while, particularly in a church, more than just a superficial kind of perspective of what, what sex is, is that we don't talk about it enough. Uh, we just don't talk about it enough, at least, at least not in the church, um, not among fellow church, church friends. And maybe you do. Maybe you have a few people that you're very honest about, about some of these things. Maybe you talk about these things outside of your Christian circles. But... I would guess hardly ever do we talk about it more in an explicitly Christian context in a very personal and relevant way, especially, uh, especially in an, an Asian American context. And, and there could be different reasons for that, uh, whether, whether it's cultural or ideological, um, you know, for some cultures and communities, talking about some of these things openly is still forbidden. It's, it's a subject that's considered taboo. Uh, maybe... You're just not comfortable at all, uh, at least all the time, talking about sex because it, it, it really isn't the easiest thing to talk about. I mean, we might joke about it a little bit here and there, but to get into a serious personal talk about our own struggles, our own thoughts about it can be hard. And I think one of the reasons for that, um, for many of us, even if we are sexually active or not, is because we tend to view sex pr primarily as personal and private. It's a personal thing, and it's a private thing, and certainly is. But oftentimes, part of the reason for why we think that it is the case is because many times we tend to look at sex or think about sex simply as a physical act between two consenting adults, right, uh, who then release their most deepest inhibitions, their, their deepest lusts, if you will, and because of this, we, we tend to feel uncomfortable to talk about it. And some of us, we might even feel a little bit ashamed. So much so that, that to talk about sex in a very personal way with anyone is like confessing our sins. It's, it's that uncomfortable for many of us. And even then, if you have children and, and you talk about it with your kids, it can be just as awkward or even more uncomfortable, not just because of your own perceptions and your own experience of sex, but also because of maybe your children's perceptions of what sex is and what they think about it, okay? And so as people of faith, we just don't talk about it uh, enough because it's personal and, and it's private, right? But as personal and private as, as it may be, let, let me just enlighten you, and, and, and this might not be something new, you may be already aware of this, but let me just tell you the, the, the state of our nation here and give you a little insight, or maybe uh, shed some light into it, because in 2018, the, the Pew Research Center did a study over, a, 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 I guess, a, a group of 2,000 random Americans, and um, this is what they found with regards to sex, okay? And they broke it down according to generation in terms of how the generations uh, engaged with sex. And it's, it's kind of interesting, right? And so uh, according to the study done in 2018, a couple of years ago, if you were born in 1946 to 1964, you were called a baby boomer, all right? And baby boomers, they found from their survey, had an average of 10.7 sexual partners in their lifetime so far, okay? Baby boomers. And they divided it up into uh, men and women. And so uh, women had an average of 7.4 partners in their lifetime until now. And on average, men had 12.9 partners. 
That's the age. So you're probably around, if you're 56 to 76 years old, 74 years old, that, that's where you stand, okay? This is our, for many of us, our parents' generation. Now, they found out the next generation we call Generation X. And if you were born from 1965 to 1980, this is where you belong, okay? So around 40, you know, 38 to like 54 years old, Generation X. And this group, on average, had 13.1 sexual partners in their lifetime, okay? And, and break that down to women, women had 10.1, and men had 16.1. So compared to our parents' generation, uh, my generation, the, the Generation X, had a lot more sexual activity going on, right? It, it, it's it's kind of interesting. Um, now, if you're born from 1981 to, to 1996, you're called what we call a millennial, right? From like age of 24 to 39, around there. And this is what they found, that on average, millennials had 11.6 sexual partners so far in their lifetime. And on average, break it down to men and women, women had 10.8 and men had 13.4. And then the generation after that, if you're 18 to 21 years old, right? Or uh, maybe 20 to 22 years old, from 1995 to 1997, Generation Z, on average, this young group had about 5.6 sexual partners so far in their lifetime, 5.6. And break that down to women, women had 2.6 and uh, males had 7.6, okay? So this is what they found. And uh, I'll just summarize some of this. Number one, uh, some of the interesting things is this, our parents had fewer sexual partners than us. Okay, I don't know if that's reassuring to you or you think about that's kind of gross, but they average a total of 10.7 sexual partners in their lifetime. While if you're a millennial at your age, you've already surpassed that number uh, overall on average. Generation Z males are seriously getting busy according to these statistics. They're very busy. They've already clocked up an average of 7.6 sexual partners before the age of 21. But Generation X, which is, which is my generation, is the most adventurous of all. They have a total of 13.1 sexual partners in their lifetime already, okay? And to summarize, 25% of the people who had sex, they admitted to having two to four people in their lifetime. From their survey, 25% had two to four in their lifetime. Now, don't worry, if your number is a little bit higher than that, 13% uh, of this group admitted to having slept with 10 to 15 people so far, okay? Now on the other side, 14% of these respondents said they only had sex with one person over the course of their life so far, okay? But 2% of these respondents impressively clocked up a total of 91 sexual partners in their lifetime so far, 2%, okay? So this is kind of an overview of what they're doing. But what's interesting about this survey is they also uh, broke it down to faith. Uh, faith-based people to Christians as opposed to non-Christians or uh, irreligious people. And this is, this is the interesting thing. From their survey, half, I won't give you the numbers, just summarize that half of Christians say that casual sex, which is defined in this survey as sex between two consenting adults who are not committed, not committed in a romantic relationship, is sometimes or always acceptable. 
Six in 10 Catholics, they say, take this view, as do 56% of Protestants in the historically black tradition, 50% of the mainline Protestants, and 36% of evangelical Protestants say that casual sex is sometimes or always acceptable, right? Among those who are religiously unaffiliated, of course, that number is much higher. Um, the vast majority, like 84% say casual sex is sometimes or always acceptable. Uh, nine in 10 atheists and uh, agnostics say this, 94, 95% of them, this is what they found, okay? And so they move in further, and then this is what they found in their survey. When it comes to sex between unmarried adults, who are in some kind of committed relationship, sex between unmarried adults who are in some kind of committed relationship, the gap between Christians and non-Christians are, are less, okay? A majority of Christians today, 57% say sex between unmarried adults in a committed relationship is sometimes or always acceptable. That's what they said. And what's really interesting according to this survey is this, how often you attended religious services is another factor in how they responded to some of these questions. That there was some kind of correlation there. That those who said before the coronavirus outbreak that they typically attend worship service uh, monthly, at least once a month, are less likely to approve of sex and dating practices asked about in this survey. Okay. So, so there you go, there, there, that, that's sort of a, a perspective on it. And to be honest, maybe you're not surprised about this, no matter what you thought Christians said about sex, but the irony here is this. You and I might be uncomfortable talking about this in a very personal way, uh, or you might be uncomfortable talking to me about this in a personal way, but yet you have to admit, we are living in a culture that is constantly bombarded by sex and sexuality whether it's used to advertise the latest product, whether it's to get people's attention to a TV show or a movie or even to sell a book, sex can be the driving force behind it all. You may not personally like talking about it yourself with anyone, but you read about it. You hear about it all the time. You see it everywhere. And this is not only the culture that we live in, but it's also the culture where our children, our nephews, our nieces, our young people, they live in as well. And even though our younger generation, according to the statistics, believe it or not, our younger generation actually is having a little less sex than the previous generation, the understanding of what sex is from a faith-based perspective, whether from religious or faith-based, or even from a non-religious perspective, is becoming a lot more hazier and hazier. And so, this is why I think it's at least important to address it once. It's important to be clear about what sex is, even if you disagree with a biblical perspective on what that is. And I know for many of you, if not all of you, if you're a Christian today and you've been you know, relatively uh, attending a service or a church service, or even if you've been around a lot of Christians, then you already know, or at least you've heard somewhere that when it comes to sex, you shouldn't have sex before you get married, right? You probably already know this. You probably already heard this. You shouldn't have sex before you get married. But the question we want to ask and be clear about is this, why? Why? Why exactly? What's so special or different about Christians having sex compared to anybody else? What's the big deal, right? And in that case, here's how I want to break this rest of the sermon down. 
First, I want to give you at least three popular reasons for why our culture tends to engage in sex. Then I want to present to you what I think Paul's view is, especially from our passage today. And then third, I will show you, hopefully to show you why it's different from, from those previous views. So, so three reasons why we, we generally tend to look at sex or engage in sex. Uh, Paul's view of sex in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and, and compare the two, okay? So let's look at this. Um, this is something I, I understand from, from, from what many uh, sociologists and, and psychologists even say today with regards to how our culture and how our people view sex. And it's connected to what we talked about last week. Uh, even in the Corinthian church, uh, very similar to what we do today, especially and as they engaged in understanding their body. And the first way that many people think about sex is this. Sex is a natural appetite. You remember that? We, oh, that's, that's something that the Corinthians uh, believed in. You know, food is for the body, the body is for the food, and so on and so forth. Um, we kind of talked about this last week, but with regards to the body, just like any other bodily activity, like sleeping or eating or drinking, sex is just another bodily appetite. So when you feel like doing it, you should just do it if you can. You just have to be careful. You have to be careful not to overdo it, okay? Some people call this view uh, a, a quote-unquote realistic or realism view of sex. It's just one human activity among many. It's a kind of a neutral view. Basically, this view, sex as a natural appetite, say, it says this. It's just biological, right? It's just hormonal. And like any other biological appetite, we just need to be careful with it. We just need to be responsible for it. And so you go to a public school and, and you take a sex ed class in, in elementary school. And by the way, that, that's being done even younger and younger, I think, uh, every few years. The drive of sex they teach you is biological and, and there's nothing more. And so we just need to be responsible. So here's a condom and uh, be responsible, right? Um, and certainly there's truth to this view. Uh, it is biological, I think. And there's definitely some hormonal issues there going on. But is that it? Uh, is there no difference then between me and a rabbit, right? Is it, is, is, it, is it just an animal thing, right? Is there something more, okay? But that's one view, and that's how maybe you see it in many ways. Uh, another view that they point out is this. It's not just sex as a natural appetite, but sort of the opposite. They call it sex as platonic. Now, when I say platonic, you're thinking, you know what, platonic relationship I means there's, there's no physical contact involved, but that's not exactly what we're talking about. The word platonic comes from the Greek philosopher Plato that saw the spirit as the highest good. The spirit is the highest good, the body is lesser. The same thing that the Corinthian church also believed, that the body, because it was physical, was simply animalistic in nature, and the spiritual was more civilized and more noble. So this view, if you have this view, a platonic view of sex, you saw sex as something that's pretty much degrading. It, it was a dirty thing, right? Uh, but it was necessary for the propagation of human race, all right, to have babies. So if you had this view of sex, uh, then you say premarital sex was wrong because sex in general was kind of dirty, but was allowable only for the higher good of having children and building up your family and society. And unfortunately, many places in the Christian church adopted this particular thinking, particularly in the 80s and the 90s, that truly spiritual people shouldn't have sex unless they're trying to have children. And to even then talk about sexual pleasure was kind of missing the point or it was inappropriate. Okay, 
So that's that's the second view that, that some people say they uh, that sociologists say that we look at sex. Now the third view is what we call a romantic view of sex, and this is very popular today as well. Now when I say romantic, I'm not talking about you know sex after a nice dinner, a bottle of wine, and a nice view. Okay, that that's a little bit a part of it, but it's taking its cues from the romanticist period, that that period that believed that basically people were full of goodness and creativity and society and culture tends to stifle that. So to get that creativity out, to be the real you, you have to be liberated from societal restraints and be free even with basic primal instincts. And, and, and so, for example, nudist colonies uh, take this kind of perspective and that's why they do what they do, right? Now, <clears throat> Let me, let me summarize this, these three views here. And none of these views are exclusive, okay? But to summarize, sex as natural appetite sees sex as an inevitable biological drive. Sex as platonic sees sex as a necessary evil, okay? But this last view, sex as romantic, sees sex as the way of self-fulfillment, self-expression, a, a way to be yourself, a way to find yourself, a way to be happy and to be fulfilled. That's what the romantic view of sex is, okay? So for the natural appetite people, sex is okay as long as it's safe, right? For the Platonists, sex, because it's, it's of the flesh, it's less than the spirit, so sex will always be kind of bad in some way, right? And sex for the romantics is the quality of interpersonal love that is the primary way of determining whether sex is right or wrong for you, okay? In other words, it's the feelies. All right, it's that chemistry. It's, it's that, you know, connection that you have. And then maybe because of that, there's justification for engaging. Now, again, these are not exclusive views here. They all kind of overlap for many of us. But in general, that's, that's how I think uh, and, and there's three basic ways that we, we tend to look at sex today. Okay. Now, I want to give you what I think is something that is, I think, completely different from all three views in Paul's view. All right. Now, before you, you know, uh, turn me off on here, you know, because, you know, you have, you already think you know where I'm going with this. This view, the Christian view, I think, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And here, if you remember from last week, Paul is addressing this church in a very real way because this church, they were so spiritual, they thought they were so faithful in going to church and doing all the Christian things. And yet on Sundays or Saturdays, they, they would, you know, go to the temple prostitutes and they would sleep with them and then they would go to church and they would say, nothing's wrong with that. It's fine. Right. Paul's addressing with them uh, with this issue. He, he disagrees with them. Uh, and he says in verse 16, he says, do you not know that he who joins himself to a prostitute becomes one body with her? And then Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, they shall become one flesh. All right, so he says this, when you sleep with this prostitute, don't you know that you become one body with this person, right? So what does Paul say to discourage them? And you look at verses 18, he says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her because the two will become one flesh? But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit. You, you have to understand the logic of Paul in order to understand why he's saying what he's saying to this church. It's his view 
And I think it's the Bible's view of, of what he sees sex is. He says, when you sleep with someone, a prostitute, he's telling this church and these people engaging this, don't you know you become one with this person in body? But the reason that he says you shouldn't engage in that is because you are already joined to another person, Jesus Christ, in one spirit, right? You become one with someone in sex, but you're already one with someone in spirit. He even uses the same verb here in verse 16 and verse 17, when he says, we become joined to the prostitute, we become joined to the Lord. The word joined literally means, uh, it's translated as something as glued together. You're joined together with a prostitute and, and you become one body, but you're joined together in Jesus Christ and you're one with him. And what he's saying is this to the church, how can a Christian who is glued to, joined to Jesus Christ, joined to him in body and soul, then casually join himself to a prostitute. And implicit in his understanding is this, that when we have sex, there is something unifying in that act. There's something that joins people in that act and is more than just physical. You're not just physically joining with someone. It's something deeper than that. For Paul, the act of physical sex has a spiritual reality. When you who are already joined to Jesus Christ by faith, and then you join yourself to a prostitute, he's saying, it's almost as if you are taking Jesus with you into your sex life. Right? And you can't get a more jarring picture of what that might like. That kind of, it's kind of freaky if you think about it. But this union with Christ that we have is so tight and so strong and so close that to commit an act of sexual immorality is to, in a sense, drag Christ along with you in the body through the mud. And that's why for Paul, sexual sin is profoundly dishonoring to Jesus. And then you see there what, what Paul is saying. He, he's not just addressing, addressing the use of prostitutes. He's using his view of sex. And that is this, right? Whatever you might think about physical act of sex, the reality according to Paul is this. That physical act of sex unites people. And it unites them not only in body, it unites them in soul. And there's something of a mystery here that, that we can't fully understand. But the point is, for Paul, and I think for the Bible, sex is never just a physical thing. And this is the problem when we talk about sex. Because when we talk about sex, we're always thinking about the physical thing, at least primarily. But for Paul, sex is never just sex. In other words, at least for Paul, sex is never just physical. It's also spiritual. It unites. Sex unites in body and spirit. Now think about this view. If you take this view then whatever your society tells you, whatever your culture, whatever your friends, whatever it is they tell you, there is no such thing then as casual sex. No matter how casual people act about it. According to this view, you, a man could have sex casually with a woman and then put her away in the back of his mind thinking that he could just forget about her. But the reality, according to Paul, is that that person has put away a person with whom he has done something that was meant to inseparably join them. Okay? Uh, to, to quote 
to, to quote Pastor Tim Keller in New York, he, he, he puts it in, in, in a very simple way. He says this, quote, sex is a God-invented way to say to another person, I belong completely and exclusively and permanently to you. And that statement then cannot be said outside of a permanent, exclusive, covenantal commitment we call at least in our culture, marriage, all right? So this is what is at stake for Paul in the question of sexual intercourse between not just prostitutes, but even unmarried people. For the Christian, sex is meant to be a life-uniting act. And it is wrong then because unmarried people who are engaging in sex engage in a life-uniting act without a life-uniting intent. For Paul, you can be as pragmatic as you want, right? But those reasons won't do. For Paul, intercourse is a sign and seal of a life union that's both physical and spiritual in nature. That, I think, is the view that Paul has, and I think the Bible has. Now, you may not believe that, or you may disagree with this, or whatever the case, but you've got to deal with this. But in contrast to the other views of sex, contrary to the Platonist view that says, you know, sex is kind of dirty, but it's necessary for propagation, the, the Christian view is different. The Bible teaches, that in fact, that sex is very good. It's something God created. It's something that he's commanded for us to do in the right context. It was meant to be good. You read the Song of Solomon. It doesn't talk about just doing sex with, uh, for the purpose of having babies. It's talking about sexual pleasure in a very vivid way that could put people who are very prudish into an uncomfortable situation. But that's what, that's, it affirms that. So it's, it's contrary to the, the, the platonic view of sex, but it's also contrary to the sex's appetite kind of view. You know, the, the Bible might acknowledge that, yes, the, the sexual drive is hormonal, it's biological, but it also teaches us that sexual desires are oftentimes broken uh, and can be uh, idolatrous. And that just to go by them as a guide, by themselves, uh, as a sexual appetite, it's not always going to be safe, right? So it's contrary to the realist view. And here, it's also contrary to the romantic view. And here's the thing, and, and if you're single today, uh, to, to understand this, the Bible teaches, all right, that love and sex are not necessarily primary for your individual happiness, what the Bible says about sex and marriage is very different from the romantic ideas of marriage and sex. Because think about this, all right? I know many of us here are married, and, and we'll talk about you guys next week a little bit more. But think about this. If this is true, and there's a push here from Paul to say that only sex in the context of a life-uniting commitment we call marriage, then what about the singles? who are not married? How do they deal with all of this, right? And this is where we go into chapter seven, because this is what we're trying to say. Even if you're in that situation, sex and marriage don't define you. That just as much as married life, singlehood is just as valid and just as important to the church, to God, uh, to others around you as much as being married. And sometimes in some situations, even, even better, right? There's a push for that kind of form of life that says, look, your singlehood is not a problem because you are not having sex or are married, okay? 
Your singleness may be a problem because you're lacking purpose in what to do with your life. That's a different response. So it's different from the romantic view that wants to emphasize this, that if you want to be happy, if you want to be self-fulfilled, if you want to be you yourself, you need to find a relationship and you need to find love and you need to get into some sex. That, that, that's contrary to, I think, what the Bible is trying to say. All right? So it's different from all these views. Now, how do we respond to this? All right? and, and this is where, where I, I'll try to be very realistic. The modern sexual revolution, and probably many of you, find this Christian view and Paul's view to be maybe a little bit impossible. It's ludicrous. Uh, maybe you think it's even harmful, psychologically unhealthy, right? And I want you to know this, okay? Whether you believe this view or not, this view has been and still is the uniform view of sex, not only in Christian churches, in the Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant, in Jewish church, in Muslim church, even in older pagan morality as well. That has always been the view of sex. And we live in a time and a place where our young adults take for granted that normal people are just going to have sex if they're in a romantic relationship. And so even those who consider themselves conservative or traditional, that simply means that they probably won't sleep with their boyfriend or girlfriend until maybe after the third date, right? And so if you're talking about the Christian ethic of abstinence and no sex outside of marriage, you're going to be laughed at, I think, in our culture. You're going to be seen as unrealistic. Uh, at worst, it might be even pathological or abnormal, right? Christians who profess this kind of view of sex can expect to be met with sarcasm, hostility, incredulity. You know, this is the reality. So this is not a popular view today. And, and I'm going to be very honest. All, all the marriages that I've done, rarely have I come and done a wedding where, you know, they held, upheld this view uh, of, of sex uh, in their relationship. Okay? So you might even agree with this, but you might have failed many times already with this. I don't know where you stand on this, but I can't deny what I think I see here uh, in Paul's view. And this is the way he addresses this church with regards to their sexual sin, right? With regards to prostitutes. It's because of his view of what sex is, both body and spirit, right? Now, why should I even try to live this out in my life, okay? Um, or to teach this to my children or, or whatever the case might be. Here, let me try to give you an example. You know, I, uh, I, I once heard uh, Tim Keller tell a story about a young woman who, who came to him after church uh, and she was quite shaken. And she suddenly realized that as she was listening to, you know, Pastor Keller preach the gospel uh, and how gospel is all about grace and it's all about, you know, faith and all that kind of stuff, that salvation is a free gift based entirely on what Jesus did for her. This is what she thought. If that's true, that salvation is based on entirely what Jesus did for her, then there was nothing that he could not ask of her. If there was some contribution she could make to her own salvation, her own life, like maybe like, for example, paying taxes to the government, you know, then, then she's paid her dues, right? And if she's paid her dues, if she could say that, then there's a limit to what's expected of her from God. She's done her part already. If there was some contribution she could make to her own salvation, 
she could say she, in some sense, she's kind of paid God off. She's paid her dues. And now he would kind of have to leave her alone a little bit, right? There would be a limit to what he could ask. But if, it, if, if salvation is all grace, if it's all faith, right? If it's all a gift, all paid for in full by Jesus Christ in her place at the cross, it struck her. Well, then there is no limit to what he could ask of her. There's no limit. She is not her own. She had been bought at a price. And that's what our passage says. And so I want us to think about this, okay? Wherever you stand on this, here in this passage and, and going forward, there's something that God is asking of you to live for him, not just in the spirit, but also in the body. And it might sound impossible. It might sound even begrudging for God to withhold something like this that you might, in fact, enjoy. Why would he even ask that? If you, and here's, here's the only reason I can think of. If you can trust Jesus with your soul, can't you trust him with your body? If you can trust Jesus with your soul, can't you trust him with your body? That he has something in mind, not just for his glory, but also for your good. It takes faith to do that. Now, I'm not trying to guilt anyone here. And I know many of you are married and you're probably thinking, well, this doesn't apply to me because I'm married. You know, it does apply to you. It, it, it probably more importantly than ever if we look forward in the next couple of chapters. But, we're not, you know, I, don't, I know this is hard, okay? And I know as sinners we're prone to failure, okay? But I want you to notice this in this passage. Not once did Paul ever question these people's faith. I mean, if I did this, if I went around sleeping with prostitutes before I came to preach to you on Zoom, you might think, oh my gosh, is he really a pastor? Is he really a Christian? I don't think he's a Christian. And Paul could have easily said this to this church. Look, you can't, you can't, you can't do what you're doing and still go to church. You can't do what you're doing and say you're a Christian. But that's not what he says, does it? He assumes that they are a Christian. And because he believes they are a Christian, the way he encourages them is by saying, look, this is, what you, this is what you got with Jesus. How can you do this with another person? And many of us here, I, you know, you're tempted to think, well, you know, I already did it once a long time ago, and so it doesn't matter anymore. Uh, so the second time is okay. And then the third time is okay. It's no big deal because I already did it once. No, there's forgiveness. There's grace. There's repentance. God sees you as a clean slate no matter how many times you've done it in the past. I don't, I don't think God will deny those Corinthians, but I don't think he would deny those prostitutes either when you come to God in grace. So it isn't, well, I just messed up once and therefore I just don't, I, it doesn't matter. It's a free-for-all. That's not the case. And so I want us to think about that, Okay. But on the other hand, on the other flip side of things, um, if you're 40 years old and you're still a virgin, right? Don't pat yourself on the back. Don't look down on other people because they weren't able to be as quote unquote pure as you. Because the reality is, you know, something might be off with you, right? Maybe, maybe you just never had the opportunity. And, you know, and, and, and whatever the case is, the only reason you are in that situation is purely by the grace of God purely by the grace of God. Now, let me just end with this. 
Whatever side you land on with this issue, number one, you've got to deal with a Christian issue here, the, the biblical perspective. You've got, to, you've got to see this, and you've got to make sense of that for yourself, all right? That's on your conscience, okay? But number two, if you decide that you want to struggle against sexual sin, right? Um, if you want to wrestle with that temptation, what do you do? And the answer here is in verse 18. Paul says, flee, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Flee from, if you, here's the thing. If you want every other temptation, every other sin, I think the encouragement is fight it, fight it, struggle against it, just, just resist it, right? But sexual sin is the only sin in the Bible that I know of that tells you don't even try to fight it, just run. Just run, just flee. Just don't put yourself in that situation. Just get out of there. And I think it's very realistic how difficult this issue is, whether it's biological, hormonal, whether it's romantic and emotional, whatever the case is, it's just very hard to really, to really do this. You need his grace. And if you're going to try to wrestle with this, don't put yourself in that position. Get out of there. That's the only uh, method I think that the Bible gives us. Flee sexual immorality. Okay. So sex and sexual sin involves our whole self. That's what you've got to realize. That's what I think Paul is teaching. It involves our bodies, certainly, but also our minds, our hearts, and even our souls. And as one scholar put it, because sex is uniquely body-joining, when we abuse it, it is also uniquely body-defiling. We are united to Christ. Our bodies are united to Christ by faith. And what we do with it matters profoundly. Okay? Because you and I, again to remind you, is that we have been bought with a price and Jesus Christ, his own body and his own blood has paid for it. So I leave that to you to think about. I think next week we'll look a little bit more about the context of marriage and talk about marriage and maybe a little bit of singlehood. But for now, I, uh, hopefully that, that is something that you could, could pray about. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. Uh, we, 